This is episode number 321, Overcoming the Victim Mindset, with David Neal. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohit, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who've overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First announcement that I wanted to make is an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming three-day experience on October 7th in Austin, Texas, called Survive to Thrive, Face Your Fears. What this is, is a three-day event where you'll get a chance to hear stories from speakers from all over the world, as well as be a part of breakout sessions that are intended to help you identify your fears and turn them into strengths. If you'd like to know more details regarding this upcoming event, please visit our website at overcomingodds.today where you'll be able to find the latest details. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our show, and that is if our show has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our cause by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. David, welcome to the show. Mate, absolute pleasure. I have been chomping at the bit since you reached out and uh, keen to get see where we end up. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. And uh, thank you for staying connected all this time. I know you and I briefly mentioned it, but we connected two and a half years ago. Maybe yeah, even longer yeah, than that. Us, and then yeah, something, take, you know, yeah. some life happened in between. And this is our first time kind of reconnecting since that time. And I, I've noticed that you've uh, you've grown a lot based on the public presence that I'm able to see. So I'm really curious to kind of dive into elements of it throughout sure. this conversation. And the other reason why I wanted to have you on here is because, as I mentioned to you, we're in the process of starting a new series within our podcast that really shines a light onto people's fears and ultimately mm-hmm. helps them pave a path through which they're able to turn those fears into strengths or other elements that they're able to use as fuel and ways to help them move forward. And one topic that you and I, I guess, have come to terms with is overcoming the fear of the victim mentality. And maybe the best way to even start off this conversation, because I, I know there's a likelihood it's going to go down many different paths. But how do you even know, just based on your own perspective, when you are being a victim of your circumstances? All right. Okay. So it, it's actually a really good question to frame where we head from here. I think there's an important distinction to be made. And, and I need to give credit to someone else who kind of jolted this into my brain like a lightning bolt some years back. Um, Peter Keith, who, who also was a part of our team and, and, you know, in and out of our networks still to this day, neuroscientist by trade, but just an all-round good bloke. And he asked the question, and, and 
it's important to note the context also that this is around, we were supporting an organization called Trojans Trek and Trojans Trek dealt with, I guess, people who inclusive of that group were right down the far end of the spectrum. I mean, some of these people had killed themselves and been revived, like it, it was gritty. You know, it's a very nasty place to be. And what you could say with absolute assurance is there weren't, weren't a lot of happy people, okay? And then you, you'd go, well, why? And, and it leads to this distinction. And we came up with the term, again, led by Peter Keith, that, you know, there were two kind of groups. There was like a victim mentality. And the victim mentality was a mindset, predominantly in veterans being that context, where they're constantly inwards looking. Um, and then it kind of leverages off things like confirmation bias and frequency bias, where they start looking for things and seeing those things. And then it becomes, it, it kind of generates its own momentum. Mm. But I guess the distinguishing point is a victim kind of starts to detach from a willingness to provide service to others. Now, if you cross-reference that against a veteran community where they attach to key values like service to others, then you start to see how they start to come off the rails. And so a victim was that inwards looking, um, you know, it was like a, an echo chamber within one's mind, heavy gearing towards rationalization, which was proving a narrative of victim. And it was leveraging off aspects of society, which would reward that behavior, mm -hmm. you know, and our culture is comprised of the behaviors we reward. And we were seeing that and, 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 you know, they were demonstrating it and it was kind of adding fuel to the fire. So that's kind of like victim category. On the other side, we had what we, we determined and it was in reference and context to the veteran world, which was a casualty. Now, a casualty on a battlefield context is someone who might have taken, taken a hit or got shot or got knocked around or, you know, taken some flack or something bad's happened. And they, they're still looking as to how they can provide service to the people around them and the world around them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's no shortage of examples, particularly even in my own crew and my own experience overseas where people were hurt, things happened. And within seconds, they're already like, no, I'm good. I can do this. I can do this. And they start leaving, leveraging off the things they can control and they can influence in order to leverage off that value set about providing service to others. Um, that's not insignificant because one, you know, the victim mentality is kind of looking in, the casualty is looking out. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, it kind of links with that, you know, that phrase from Gandhi, and I'll, I'll paraphrase slightly correctly, but it was, you know, enlightenment is to find um, service for others, you know, in mm -hmm. the pursuit of service for others. And I think that's where you where you would see the penny drop moment, particularly from a, a veteran go, ah, shit, I see what I've done here. I've kind of gone a bit rogue um, and I, I, I've been my own little echo chamber and I removed objectivity to be able to, which would have been able to circuit break this. And no one wanted to offend me and no one wanted to upset me. So no one said anything. And so I've spooled up in my own space and, and time. And so... I really use those two terms in order to reset myself and go, is that a victim mentality or is that a casualty a mm. mindset? And, and you see it too, because you, you might have a veteran come up and you see two groups form, you know, mm -hmm. in that little community. It's a good little case study, a little experiment. And they come up and they're like, yeah, man, you know, I got kicked out because medically discharged and 
you know, yeah, busted knees, busted back, but you know, infantry, and it's like, you're still there. You never left. You never left. You know, and they're going to stay there until they willingly choose to jump out of that, you know, and they're on their fourth marriage and they're very lonely and they drink too much. And it's like, it, it's almost like a stereotype, but it happens over and over and over again. It's, a, it's not so much a stereotype as it, is, as it is a character type. And and then you go down the other path and you meet others who are like, yeah, look, I left, you know, I left on good terms. It was a great while I was there, you know. I made some, you know, I made some poor choices, but I learned from it. I've got a great mm-hmm. deal of experience. And you just like, you just see this divergent path where the two are totally different people, totally different mindsets and never shall the two meet really. Um, I don't know if that explains it, it's, but it, it's kind of a snapshot into my mind anyway. It's fascinating how that works. At least it is for me, how I'm sure there have been plenty of experiments done as well, where you have two people who live in the same household and there's a, event that happens to both of them, but how they choose to interpret their circumstances and what they choose to take away from it. Very similar to what you just described, as far as plenty of men being on the same battlefield, fighting the same battle, and yet the battle afterwards is drastically different for some. Yeah, yeah. and how they perceive it as well. Mm -hmm. It's filled, it's kind of like, I guess, one of the defining features about neuroscience and the way our brains work is our brains aren't geared towards filtering in information. They're predominantly geared towards filtering out information and not by a small margin. We're talking, you know, of a billion pieces of information, maybe like a hundred get through on a good day. You know, there's nothing. And so then you go, well, what gets through? Well, it's wherever your frame of reference is. It's what you're looking at, what you're applying weight of relevance to. And then you start to see it everywhere. You know, it's like if I go to you, oh, geez, there's a lot of yellow cars everywhere. Have you ever noticed how many yellow cars there are? <laughs> and then you walk out in the street, it's just fucking yellow cars as far as I can see. Well, mm-hmm. it's same happens from a mindset perspective. And I'm not, uh, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've really been applying a lot of thought for what is the right balance between kind of like positivity versus realism. You know, it's like mm-hmm. idealism versus realism. And what's the tension point? Because you don't want someone who's just overly positive, but it's devoid of reality. Mm. Like, that's not helpful. To, <laughs> that's not good for anyone. That's a disaster. That's like, we're in an absolutely chaotic thing. There's blood and guts in everywhere. And someone's like, oh, a beautiful rainbow. You're like, come on, <laughs> mate. Like, stay, stay on task here. We've got some stuff to do. You, you don't want that. That's, that's too far down the spectrum. But also, you don't want that person who can overtly state the obvious about how bad things are like that's easy as well that's just lazy it's lazy from a mindset perspective and it's not good leadership and it's not it doesn't help anyone it's not resourceful mm-hmm. and so it's like there's something in the middle and you and I when we first talked we talked about this it was like what's this rub point between positivity and looking looking for opportunities for things you can control and you can influence Mm-hmm. That's a world apart of going, the world is happening to me. It's mm-hmm. a totally different mindset. And, you know, it's not this morning I was looking at your TED talk again, Oleg, because I love it and I've watched it many times. And you were talking about what was in your capacity when you were a child mm-hmm. in those circumstances. Well, what could you do? Well, you could grab some food for you and your sister. Mm-hmm. You, you could do that. There was a price to pay for it, but you mm-hmm. could still do it. That was within your influence and control. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't know, there seems to be this tension point and 
it, it's hard because not many people want to talk about it because it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And you might have to, you might bridge on an elephant in the room, which is like, well, what choices have you got? You might have more than you think. And that's uncomfortable. Do you ever find yourself even now with having developed the mindset that you have around being able to step outside of the circumstances that you're going through? Do you still find yourself sometimes falling back to the victimhood from time to time? And if so, like, what, what do you do in that moment when you, A, how do you even recognize that that's what's happening? And then B, what's the next step that you do after that? Well, it's a really good question. And, and yes, the answer is every day. <laughs> I mean, I think it's every couple of, every couple of minutes, there's a, there's a discussion that, ha- you know, call it a monologue or a dialogue, however you want to mm-hmm. look at it. But, you know, um, call it the voice. It's, ra- you know, and the technical term being rationalization. You know, one of the key characteristics of people is you can convince yourself of absolutely anything you want to convince yourself of. I've proved that to myself. Oh, (laughs) mate, we're the best. Everyone's the best. They're all experts at this. And, um, you know, to prove the point, if you, you know, there's a, there's a, a shop, you know, it's not a shop, it's a big warehouse. Imagine this massive warehouse in, and it's a hardware store in Australia. And yeah, it's got everything. It's got like timber and cool gadgets and every bit and bob you can imagine. And, but if you go into there, particularly me, particularly from my background, I'll buy everything. Like, I'm just like, I want that. I need that. I need that. I need that. Like, and I'll just, I'll buy everything. And I can leave. And, and this is the trick, of the, the trick of the mind. I could grab everything. I could pay for it. Even if I don't really have a lot of money at the time, I'll, I'll buy a thing. I need that drop saw. Like, just in case I need to cut a piece of timber. Like, just in case. Like, that's mm-hmm. important. You know, what if I need to cut a piece of timber? I don't have a drop saw. Well, I'm done. Like, that's done. And, and the rationalization will convince you that that's exactly what you need and what you should do. And then it doesn't stop there because you could just leave and you're like, yeah, this is a good investment. Where do you think that drop saw sits, Oleg? It sits like in the, mm-hmm. sits in the garage, it never gets used. And you're like, yeah, one day that drop saw is going to become quite irrelevant. <laughs> you know, and so, but, you know, that's kind of like a, a lovely, fluffy kind of way to look at it, like a positive, you know, in a bright light with a rainbow behind it. But if you want to go down, you want to pick that topic and you want to go down the dark end of the world, you go look at things like genocide. And I I hate to bring a topic like this to those sorts of topics, but if you want to understand how the brain works and how far this goes, there are no limits. And it's some, you know, using genocide as an example, like someone thought that that was a great idea. They didn't just stop there. They were able to convince other people that it was a good idea, but they didn't just stop there. They were able to convince themselves that anyone not doing it was the weird one, all right? And so then you go, well, how far does rationalization go? It's like, it's, it's nonstop, it, it has no limits, and it will take you down dark places. Mm-hmm. And so having done a lot of research into those sorts of topics, for me, it's like, as soon as I start to sense that it's happening, I go, whoa, and I start to categorize. I'm like, is that victim or is that casualty? And I go, if it's victim, where is it leading me? What's the trajectory of that? Is it resourceful? Does it actually help me? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another awkward and uncomfortable topic that not many want to broach is, is discipline. It takes discipline on the back end of conditioning to go, I've been here before. This wasn't that great, by the way. 
um, the trajectory, not so good. I'm going to stop this at the gate. I'm going to stop it at the gate. I'm going to ask myself some questions and I'm going to go, well, what can you do? What, what is a new influence and control? Like what I was saying mm -hmm. before. And will that guide me on a slightly better trajectory? But I think the difference between, you know, someone who's not self-aware or hasn't even considered the topic, like some people who just don't invest anything in personal development and, and, and power to them. Good luck to them. But you, you cross-reference those that have and those that haven't. And you go, well, what's the difference? The rationalization doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. so that, that insidious little voice, that doesn't go away. What goes away is the, the reaction time to how quickly you can identify it's happening and then do something about it. That's mm -hmm. the difference. Whereas someone might go years and then go, oh, I didn't even realize I was doing that. Someone else goes, I stopped it at three seconds in. Mm -hmm. And that's different. Mm -hmm. I think that's the best way I can describe it. It's like I'm getting, I feel like I'm getting quicker and mm -hmm. identifying it by the language and the trajectory and cross-referencing against, because I'm thinking about it. It's like what you look for is what you find. I'm looking for it. And then when you see it, you go, oh shit, it's happening again. Like, mm -hmm. And that's like every hour, like every, there's always a something. And I know you're probably in the same boat. It's almost like a heightened sense of awareness. That's what I'm realizing is that with all of these, all of this new information that I've been able to receive through books, podcasts, and a variety of other people, my awareness becomes more and more focused and more and more tuned in to the signs and the anchors and the triggers of those things so that you're yep. spot on. When it does happen, what, what I'm able to do is the reaction time gets shorter and I'm able to create, to pick now, I'm not going to say better decisions because sometimes the decisions aren't always as accurate, but if yeah. anything, it's becoming more aware of it and going back to your point, and that's something that I've been very fortunate to discover through my life. It's that I don't believe you can solve a problem unless you know what the problem is to begin with. Mate, it's the um, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, mate. Like that, that, mm -hmm. That's the crux of the entire show, wasn't it? You know, the... They create a deep thought, the computer that was going to answer the, you know, the overall question of life, the universe and everything. And, and then it spent like tens of millions of years analyzing and it came up with the answer and it's 42. Mm -hmm. and, and they go, well, what the hell does that mean? It's like, well, you didn't <laughs> ask, ask the right question. So, yeah. you know, it's exactly that problem set, you know, do, do you even know what you're trying to solve? Um, that, that, that's like an existential question right there. That's really hard to answer. And each person's going to be very different. But what you could say with absolute assurance is if it, if you don't have the ability to filter and detect the trajectory of your choices, mm. then it's going to likely gear towards negativity, which is likely to gear towards un, unproductive or unresourceful outcomes. Like you, you could put money on that. Mm -hmm. Um it, it, if in the absence of any kind of forced, you know, circuit breaker, it will go on, it will, it will you know, it's like a, when you have a car, but one of the tire pressures is at half, you know, it's mm -hmm. at 15 PSI and it starts veering off the road. You, you can put money, it's going to veer right, you mm -hmm. know, and right being the bad option in, in this context. So I, I think that's a big part of it. it there's another little piece to this. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you, you think of humans and you go, well, what are we? And we're, you know, we're, we're our own species. But 
one thing I guess that makes us inherently unique as compared to other species on this planet is we can do things that are unnatural. Mm. Like we can, by choice, by learning, by conditioning, by technology, by a whole variety of other filters, we can start changing A, the environment, but also B, our response to the environment. Mm-hmm. And it's not instinctive. It's, it's not meant to be instinctive. Um, and I'm not like, I, I, for anyone who goes, just follow, you know, just listen to that voice inside your head and, and go for gold. It's like, yeah, cool. How does that turn out? Just go look at the last hundred years of, of history and see how that played out. Like, that's not necessarily mm-hmm. the best piece of advice. It's like, no, no, no. I can actually fight myself. And, and for productive means, like I can, I can go, well, I've done this before. And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go do something completely different. And I'm going to take risks I didn't take before. And none of it's instinctive, but it's all, you know, it's all based on conception. And so that's the power. Like that's a superpower right there. Then that's the really interesting. Is, how are you going to use it? You have the ability to do something that's unnatural. That's unique. What are you going to do with that superpower? Like how are you going to use it? Um, because if you just go with the flow and just go with what feels right, I'll tell you what, that's how cocaine addicts end up exactly behind a, the back end of a dumpster because it just felt like the right thing to do at the time. It's like, well, shit, maybe we head down a different path by doing something that's not natural. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel good. It's mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, we might have to sacrifice the now for the future. Oh, Jesus, what does that look like? You know, you just mentioned before we pressed record that you're training up for a triathlon. Why the hell would you train up for a triathlon? <laughs> like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like it's uncomfortable. It's 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 you know it's probably damaging your joints. You've got to get up early every morning. There's nothing natural about any of that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing natural about it. But you're doing it. Well, why? Well, you want to pressure test yourself. You want to be a better version of yourself. You want to see if you can do it. Mm-hmm. And if you can do it, well, geez, what's the baseline now to move to the next level? That's unnatural. There's nothing natural about any of the things you're doing to trade up for a triathlon. Like, I couldn't think of anything worse. But <laughs> you're doing it for a reason, and, and it's unnatural to do it, but it's got incredible utility. So, so good on you. Power to you. You'll, yeah. you'll go in and I've no doubt you'll achieve it, but then you'll have a new baseline. You'll go to a whole new level. Um, that's cool. But I think, you know, if we were talking, the whole concept is victim mentality. What can you control? Well, you can control whether you get up or you give up in a week's time or like, are you going to give up in a week's time? I doubt it because I know your background. I know you're just mm-hmm. going to keep duking it out and you'll get through it. But, you know, there are going to be all the lures to, to drag you back onto not necessarily a productive um, path and you will fight them and you will win and then you'll be a better person for it. It's really interesting that that you mentioned this, especially in regard to the concept of what's natural and, and non-natural. And, and something that I've been curious about is why are, it seems like some people more prone to change and others not. And I think it goes back to your point. It's accepting the fact that yes, change in general is an unnatural thing, right? You're, it's literally, I think it says it in the word, you're having to change what's already there, what you prefer, what you're comfortable with in order to see a different outcome, different version, different result. And I've been very curious as far as A, how have people been able to make that 
switch? And, and also, why some and not the others? Why is mm. it that this group is able to do it, but not this, this other group? What do they have that other people don't? And so I'm curious, because a lot of the work that you do as well, when it comes to your profession, I'm sure you deal with quite a number of people who are wanting to change, who are wanting to build up whatever the necessary muscles are, but may not feel like they're able to. What do you think that particular instance ultimately boils down to? Is it as okay. simple as a decision? Is there more than that? Nah, it's way more complex than that. I, I wish it were as simple as that. <laughs> um, I wish life would just become infinitely easier. So, okay. So this, we've got to kind of look at two planes of, mm -hmm. of how people are motivated. Okay. Now, if you want to run one line of logic, you would say motivation is what you're generally running towards. Okay. It's, it's reward based. So we talk about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, um, endorphins to some extent, those who do endurance sports. No one loves endurance sports, it sucks. Um, <laughs> what they enjoy, when they get addicted to endurance sports, they're not getting addicted to the sport, they're getting addicted to the endorphin rush as a result of having done something that's quite painful, which in fact is a painkiller. Endo from endocrine, orphine, morphine, naturally produced morphine, very, very addictive. That's why they get addicted to endurance sports. So that's very reward-based. And they're different rewards and they feel differently to each of us. Oxytocin being your love drug, serotonin being your community drug, when you kind of like feel like you're in the right place, doing the right thing and everything's safe, that's serotonin. Um, so that's cool. Like that's reward-based, it's motivation. The, the problem we have is that most of the narrative, I, I feel, you know, and this is subjective, but I, I'll, I'll put my, my cards on the table. I feel that in predominantly in my industry as well, everything's motivation-based. It's all running to and, you know, goals and, and, and outcomes and, you know, rewards. And I, I, I get it. it. It's a very important part of the discussion. I'm not downplaying it. I feel it's half of the equation though, mm. okay? And what I mean by that is when you run experiments, and you're testing dopamine as an example. You run the same experiment with the same person or the same candidate with the same variables over and over and over again. And what you end up with is something that looks like the half-life of dopamine. So you give someone a $5,000 bonus, they're like, oh my God, it's amazing. I look like a rock star. I'm going to go home. I'm a, you know, I'm a legend. Like this job's the best. Six months pass, you give another $5,000 bonus. They're like, oh, this is really good. I like this. $5,000 six months after that, like, thank you. And now it's part of the norm. It's become, become part of entitlement. Mm. And that's how dopamine works. It's not enough to keep us moving. It's not definitely not enough to keep you in your triathlon game. I'll tell you that much. You need to be running from something as well. And that's where I think the game of discipline plays. So you've got motivation and you've got discipline. And I think discipline is based on fear. I, I, I inherently believe that. And I mean, I don't mean it in a negative or, an, um, or a um, debilitating manner, not fear to the point of capitulation. I'm not talking about that, but a healthy dose of fear to remind you what you're running from. Now, for me, I try and keep myself relatively fit. I'm not doing triathlons and stuff like that, <laughs> but I, I, I try to keep myself relatively fit. Why? For me, it's not about what I'm running to. I don't have this ideal body that I'm running to. 
I'll tell you what I'm running from. I'm running from obesity. I'm running from um, a poor representation that my kids might latch onto, poor habits that they might um, they might take if I continue down a path of unproduct unproductive health. You know, and so for me, I, you know, I, I exercise you know pretty much every day as best I can. I've got limitations. I've got some injuries that I took from my my combat days. So be it. Whatever. I'll work around them as best I can. It's not always pretty, but we, we find a way to do something, you know? Mm -hmm. And as long as we keep on that, I know I'm not going to fall into the, you know, the seductive lure of, you know, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. And so I, for me, fear is a, a massive driver towards my success. Before we, we launched this particular podcast and this chat, you know, you and I were umming and ahhing about which topic we would pick. Mm. And I said, no, yeah, I've got a couple here. And we, we landed on victim mentality. But I think it nests with another one, which was the, I, I want to be a provider for my family. That's a value for me, and particularly as a you know, traditional male mindset. I, I want to be a provider for my family. Like, go sue me. Um, just want to be a good dad and I want my family as security. Like, fuck, good. shoot me, right? Like, you call me a bad guy, but that's what I want. I want to make sure they're safe, they're secure, and they're provided for. Like, and here's the thing. When I, I get up and I'm like, oh, you know, I don't really want to sell things and I don't want to, you know, think about what, you know, the next IP is for our business or what product we're going to build or what thing I'm going to research. That's the motivation piece. Like that's what I'm running to. And I'm like, it starts to dissipate. It, like it wears thin. And I'm like, I look over the other side and it's like this big looming wolf going, you're going to be irrelevant. And if you're irrelevant because you're not on top of your game, you're not going to be able to provide. And the company with, which has staff and people and teams in it, they, they're looking for you to be able to do this function. Like this is what you do. I'm mm. like, Phew. I'm going to go learn about a thing. Like, I'm going to go learn about game theory. Like, I'm going to learn about a thing today. So maybe we could use that as part of our product and we can keep refining our, our brand. But it's for me, it's fear that actually drives that in a productive manner. It doesn't keep me up at night. It doesn't, it's not debilitating. It's not fear in the sense of inducing too much stress to the point that you, you, you top out and you go over the cliff. I'm not talking about that. But it's this little healthy dose to go, all right, I need, I'm going to go watch the thing. I'm going to read the article or I'm going to learn that, that thing. I'm going to reach out to that person to, to get their time. And so this being the topic of fear, I see fear as a very, very productive tool, providing we're using it in the right tolerances and we've articulated the problem we're actually trying to solve and then using motivation and discipline simultaneously. When motivation starts getting tied behind the wheel, discipline jumps in takes the wheel for a little bit keeps you moving now it might not be pretty but it will keep you moving mm -hmm. and then it might motivation gets a rest and it's like i'm back on let's go let's keep going full throttle mm -hmm. and, and i see the interplay between those two um as the absolute precursor for success for anyone whatever it is your goal is um if you're just running on motivation i'll see you in six months and you'll have quit i'll put mm -hmm. money on it um, if you've got enough fear to go, no, 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 this is, this is why I need to change. You talk about change. How do you convince someone to change, particularly if they're stubborn to change? Mm -hmm. Well, you remind them of what's the, what's the risk of not changing? 
And then they go, oh shit, well, irrelevancy, or, you know, it's going to get worse. Like the, the work's going to compound or whatever it is. And you go, okay, remember that. Because when the motivation to do all the time and the effort to get this, whatever this is, this project, this thing over the line, you go back to that and you remind yourself that we're doing this because if we don't, there are bigger prices to pay. And they go, okay, mm. I'm on, I'm on board. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I, I conceptualize it anyway. Yeah, the consequences are significantly larger. That's what I realized. And then you bring pick, up pick a really good point. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You bring up a really good point. And that's what is the alternative, right? What is the alternative yeah. to not changing? It's to being able to do and see the same exact thing. And I think it might have been Einstein or whoever else that said this, that the definition of insanity is repeating the same exact thing, but expecting different results. I think that's the right. same exact thing for not wanting to change. Yeah, yeah. And, but you can understand it. So, you know, and it, it's not to pass judgment on people. Mm. You can't. Like, you and I can't pass judgment on anyone. We're humans. We do it all the time as well. We're constantly fighting ourselves. This, mm -hmm. is, this is not from any moral high ground. This is just people speaking to people about life, about being, right? It's, it's no judgment. But that rationalization, that little voice inside your head wants to keep you exactly where you are. And if you ever really want to pressure test that idea, you go, all right, there's an old adage, and it's generational, this adage. You know, it's, it's old. And it goes, I'd rather dance with the devil I know than the devil I don't. Mm. I'd rather dance with the devil I know than the devil I don't. And you go, well, okay, what does that mean? And it goes, well, here, here's a scenario. Why do people stay in abusive households for decades? Why would you do that? Because the fear of getting out of the household is unknown. It's uncertain. Mm -hmm. And the fear of uncertainty is the largest, is the biggest fear of all. There's no fear that's bigger than that. And so I'd rather stay here in this enclosed system of hell. At least I know what I'm signing up for. Mm -hmm. At least I know I've survived one day. I could survive 100. I could survive 1,000. And they'll stay there. And, you, and, and I'm not passing judgment. I need to reinforce it. I'm just stating what it is, what, why we do what we do. Well, we know this. This is something we know. But, geez, what if I jump out and it's even worse? Yeah. What then? Like, that's terrifying. Yeah. I'm going to stay here. I'm just going to do my time. I'm, I'm, it'll be right. Things might get better. And rationalization will tell you <laughs> what you want. It will tell you it might get better. I think it'll be right. It'll be right. It'll be better tomorrow. They said, sorry, you know, and so it just cycles, 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 and time just, time just goes. It just keeps going. I'm not passing judgment, but what I'm trying to say is how, why is that relevant? Well, if, if, if we're too scared to change, how, how can you tase someone in the ass to get from one state to another that might actually help them? You remind them of the fear of not changing. And you go, you tell me, what if nothing changes, what does this trajectory look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And they'll tell you, or they will tell you. They'll say in no uncertain terms, it'll be exactly like it is now. And you're like, okay, what is the, how does that make you feel? It's like, that is disgusting. Like, I can't see my, I can't even look at myself in the mirror with the idea of that. Okay. 
remember that. Remember that when we do this jump, because it's gonna be a rocky road. Like this is not this is not meant to be pretty. It's not meant to be fun. It's the lesser of two evils. And we're doing it voluntarily to get to the chance of a better state. And when you start to wane in your motivation, you damn well remind yourself about why you're doing this. And it will start, you'll draw an energy that you didn't know you had. And you'll get over the line. You'll go to where you need to go. Won't be pretty though. It's going to be covered in scratches and fucking shrubs and all sorts of shit. It's not going to be pretty, but you'll get there. Oh, it's always a bumpy ride, to say the least. Yeah. David, how do, how do people connect with you? What do you have coming up that's part of your business, part of your personal life that people can be a part of? Mate, look, if anyone wants to connect with me, I, I, uh, I disproportionately approach LinkedIn as my primary platform. Um, I, I'm, I don't have a lot of presence on Facebook and Instagram and, and other platforms at this time. Um, LinkedIn seems to be where we're most relevant. So that would be a good start. Come visit our website, www.8thmile.com.au. That'd be a good start. Um, but, you know, we've got our own kind of little community forming at the moment. It'd be lovely to have people come and join it. People seem to get a lot out of it. We hear a lot of anecdotal, uh, I guess, responses around the world that people heard the right thing at the time they needed to hear it and they've kind of leveled up or, you know, it's done something for their relationship or for them and their business or whatever. So that's good. Um, but it's lovely, lovely to have people join us. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next time.